What's happening? Welcome to the Matt Bernier Show, part of the In The Money Media Network. My name is Matt Bernier. You can follow me on Twitter at Bernier underscore Matt. This is episode 21 of the pod for the In The Money Media Network for Monday, June the 29th, 2020. However you listen, thank you for doing so. A number of ways to find the podcast, whether you're listening or watching. Obviously, if you're watching, you're over on YouTube. In that search bar, all you need to do Search Matt Burney, your show. It'll pop up along with all the old episodes. Make sure you subscribe to the In The Money channel. Make sure the bell icon's lit up so you get a notification anytime new content has been uploaded on the channel. Uh, thumbs up, thumbs down. Either way goes a long way. It may not seem like it, but it helps us as far as sort of interaction and things like that are concerned. Uh, and also, if you listen to just the audio-only version, you have InTheMoneyPodcast.com where you can find all the other products pods, things like that, any of the media available over on In The Money Media, um, that's where you need to find that. And if you're listening just strictly on phones and devices, things like that, you have Apple Podcasts and you also have your Android device. Uh, For this week's show, we're going to start off right at the top with some of the comments from last week and how that can affect this thing going forward because when push comes to shove, all I really care about is doing things that people are interested in listening to or watching and maybe I've lost a little bit of the eye, a little bit of the fastball recently. So we'll address some of that and maybe some things that are going to change here going forward. Dive into a race coming up at Belmont on Friday afternoon. It's going to be kind of part of that whole initial opening piece. Also touch on some Q&A, go over just a couple of comments that some folks have left from last week's show. Then also updated pick history, and I'll do a bit of a quick run-through of some opinions of the big races from this past weekend, whether it's a Stephen Foster, the Florida lead, the Just a Game, the New York. Uh, those are the big ones anyway that we'll quickly touch on. And then also uh, in the money and off the board segment for this week. So let's start off with the top piece because this is the most important part of this entire pod. And that's why we're going to kick it off right out of the gate. Uh, there have been a number of people, and I know it's not a, a giant number, but I typically when there are people that bring up certain things, they're probably not the only ones thinking that. There are only a certain amount of people that are actually going to verbalize it or make it clear, but it's probably not a, a unique thing. Um, some folks have brought up the the idea that maybe this pod has lost a little bit of its luster. Maybe it's not quite as interesting as it once was. Maybe it's become a little bit stale. Um, some of the specific sort of pieces, some of the specific comments. You know, I, I'm I'm much more interested in hearing the the legitimate gripes that people have. And not the not the trolly kind of comments. And some of you made it clear that when I acknowledged some of the trolls from a few weeks ago, you weren't thrilled with that. Promise I won't do that anymore. Um, these comments here, to me, these were more constructive criticism than anything else. Um, a, a comment like the one from Hardy Films. Uh, Matt, your show lacks meat on the bones. I'm terribly bored listening to you ramble on about general information that is self-evident to us all. Uh, a new face and tone of voice only goes so far. Tell us something new or you're going to bomb here. Interview someone interesting. Anything but this endless string of nothing new. You might try making your show about your horse heroes and their upcoming races. I mean, Lady Apple sort of bombed. She was a filly I liked in the Kentucky Oaks last year. Uh, but she finished third. I don't know if she bombed, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, but it was at least interesting to listen to your enthusiasm about her. We all have horse he- heroes out here. Uh, talk about them because that is a story that you could probably sell to people. Genuine enthusiasm is contagious. I agree and I understand 100% that recently, and, and some other folks have brought it up as well, just sort of the the lack of 
the lack of enthusiasm. Uh, Scotty McMichael, I agree with Hardy Films' comment. The best gambling podcasts are where you can never tell if the host had a good or bad betting week. They bring the same level of enthusiasm every time. After getting the BCBC seat, Matt was so enthusiastic in the podcast. The past couple of weeks, uh, after going through a cold streak with the $100 challenge, he sounds somewhat disinterested as reflected when he answered troll comments in his Q&A episode, uh, excuse me, Q&A piece in episode 17. All that 100%, and I can't argue it. it it's... A fact is a fact and uh, something I needed to be probably a little bit better about and need to be more self-aware of. And maybe it just takes this. I need some some of you out there that are listening and watching to just kind of smack me around and say, come on, let's go get back to it. Um, to keep going on with Scotty's comment, we don't want to listen to him fire back at trolls on this pod. That's a waste of everyone's time. The best insight Matt's given us came when he talked about silver prospectors, incremental splits in the Rebel. That's something not everyone focus. Excuse me. That's not that's something not everyone notices at first glance, and that's the kind of insight that needs to be on this podcast more often. There's a lot of overlap between the in the money media shows, especially this one and Redboard Rewind which is Spencer Luganbuehl. You can find that over on inthemoneypodcast.com, albeit Spencer's really stepped up his game with the guests that he's had on his shows. So there are many pieces here, and other people have brought up the idea of doing interviews and, and, and things like that. Uh, if, if you, even going back to when I was at the Racing Forum doing this show, the interview piece, it's something that I can do, but I am not, I don't believe it's a strength of mine. I'll do it for NBC when I have to, but it's not something I'm particularly comfortable with, A, and B, I don't think I'm particularly good at it. So I try to avoid that. And I also feel like from an interview standpoint, anyone that I would have on here, for the most part, you will have probably heard in other podcasts as well, whether it's In The Money or any of the other racing podcasts that are out there or any of that kind of stuff. Anybody that I would have on, is it's very unlikely that they're going to be a unique voice. You've probably heard them at least once, if not twice, three times, four times, five times, ten times. So I, that's not something that I'm particularly interested in. I wanted to throw a little bit of a spin on this thing, and I brought it up in the Horse Players Happy Hour this past Friday with PTF. As opposed to interviewing someone in the industry or someone who's not necessarily in the industry but is interested in horse racing, I'm more intrigued with the idea of going over a race one a week and having listeners and viewers hop on with me to dissect the race. And I want to hear what your opinions are, for better or for worse, and... It's out there, and, and we you you have a, a platform where you can get it out and not just have to type in who you like. I'll give you 10, 15, 20 minutes to chop it up and go through the race, and it'll probably be more you than me. It would just be more a matter of I'm kind of directing traffic, and if there's something I really find interesting, maybe I'll throw it out there. But for the most part, this is an opportunity for someone else to sort of take the reins and say, this is what I like. Now, obviously, this only works if you all are interested in doing this and are also comfortable either being on camera or just verbalizing things. Um, but my, my idea is once a week, it'll probably be every Friday, I'll pick a race and that will be the race that we'll go over for the week. And in the comment section beneath the YouTube player, the video player, not the YouTube player, I sound like such an old man when I say that, beneath the video player on YouTube, all you need to do, my thought anyway, and maybe some of you can can chime in and say for better or for worse, maybe we need to change the the, the sort of criteria to, to be involved with this, but I just want to see, just pick the winner, and from those of you that pick the winner, if there are multiples, I'll just do it randomly, and if there's only one, you'll be the person that the following week, 
uh, the following Monday, I'll have you come on and we'll either do a, a phoner where it's through Skype or through Zoom. If you're comfortable being in front of a camera and actually talking, we'll do it on Zoom or Skype, you know, again, either way, but, but with the video piece up. And we'll just riff. We'll go back and forth. That, to me, is a hell of a lot more interesting than hearing the same old people talk about things. And it's not a dis- it's not certainly not disrespecting guests that have gone on podcasts. I've had them on before. I've had guests on. I just, it, it's, you can find it a number of places. Let's open this up as a possibility. And hopefully this is something that kind of goes to Scotty's comments and goes to Hardy Films' comments. If it's the same old, same old, this is not the same old, same old. If you guys are willing to to play ball. It only works if you're willing to play ball. You need to be willing to come on and either talk through a race or be on camera and and go back and forth. But the, you need to be willing to do that. If you're not, then this this is, doesn't fly. But I'm trying to do something a little bit unique, a little bit different. So that's going to be the plan going forward. Let's start anyway and see. If, if none of you are, are, are diving in, then I'll have to figure something else out. But for right now, I want to try this. I want to try. We'll set up a race. It'll be every Friday. I'll identify it probably on the pod the week before, um, or I'll, I'll leave it in a comment section sort of piece here. But for right now, it'll be a race every Friday. I'll pick. I'll try to take into consideration weather and things of that nature just so we don't have to get into anything too, too crazy, you know, a sloppy track, off the turf, whatever. And if you pick the winner from that Friday, I'm going to go through and we'll contact whether it's on Twitter or, you know, I'll, I'll leave a comment and, and say, you know, send me an email, whatever the case may be. And we'll try to set up a time on Monday morning or, or Monday early afternoon to record something. So that way we can go over the race uh, for that following week's podcast. Um, this week, the race that I'm going to touch on will, and I'll handicap it. We'll go through and I'll show you the PPs and I'll, I'll give you my rationale for things. It'll be the ninth at Belmont on Friday. It's the license fee. It's a six six furlong uh, stakes race on the inner turf course. If you want to be involved in this for next Monday's show, and I know next Monday is what, the 6th of July. I know some of you may be on vacation just because of the holiday or whatever it may be, but that's when it's happening. Next Monday's pod, we will sit down and we'll chop up uh, the race for that Friday and we'll go from there. But again, all contingent on the amount of sort of back and forth we get on this thing. If, if none of you are, are up for it, then this isn't going to work. If some of you are, and you're willing to come on and, and shoot the breeze for a bit, then I think this will be an interesting segment going forward. So the ninth at Belmont on Friday, let's go into that race now. I'll show you what I'm looking at, my thoughts, then we'll come back, button it up, go over a little bit of Q&A, and go on with the rest of the pot. All right, let's do it. Race 9 at Belmont on Friday afternoon, the $80,000 license fee. This is going to be the race leading into next week. If you want to get involved for the little handicapping segment that I'm hopeful is going to become a new staple to this pod on Mondays, let me know who you think is going to win the race beneath the video player on YouTube. If there are multiples who pick the winner, I'll just do it randomly. But if there's only one of you, I'll contact you. We'll get the information out so we can record from Monday and get ready, and we'll talk about whatever next Friday's race is going to be. For this Friday, this is the race, Six Furlongs Inner Turf. I'm going to breeze through this with some ideas, some opinions, some thoughts, and who I like in here. The one Bridalwood cat, not a hell of a lot of turf pedigree. Street Sense, 11% for the turf sprinters. Uh, the dam was 0 for 1 on grass. None of the offspring have run on turf. There is a little bit of class in the pedigree, though, for Jonathan Thomas here. Sibling to Sweet Loretta, multiple graded stakes winner sprinting on dirt. 
The dam is a sibling to Spring in the Air, who is a grade one dirt winning router. Um, it, you know, it, again, the fact that a rad's here, interesting. She did some good things on dirt. I don't have any real knocks other than I don't see a ton of turf. And at a, I don't know what kind of price she's going to be, but I assume she's going to be forwardly placed. The time form U.S. pace projector, which you can see up here in the upper right hand corner, they've got her forwardly placed. I assume from the rail, Arad's got to go. And for a horse that I have no idea if turf is what she's going to want to do, uh, it's going to be a pass for me. If she gets it done, great tip of the cap. Uh, she can do it without me. I won't have her. The two horse in here, a great time. One of two in here from Mike Trombetta. Johnny V's got them out. You can see this formulator fact right here. Uh, past four years, turf sprint. Second after a 180 or greater layoff. Uh, two for, uh, excuse me, five for 21, 12 in the money, 282 ROI. She's a little bit of a nibbler. I do like the horse. I think there's some ability, but she just doesn't seem to get to the winner's circle enough for my liking. Two for 16 lifetime, seven times second or third. This return effort at Laurel popped the left lead late for the final 16th, but she was down inside on the rail, was rather tough. Height. Don't want to hold that against her. And don't hold against her that the top two horses from that heat came back and earned mint to high 50s. As far as buyers are concerned in their start, those came on synthetic. The rest of the fields come back pretty solid. You've got a couple of next out winners, one with an 82. A horse that didn't win her next start came back and earned an 82 buyer. So I would say this is one of those instances where if she can sit off the pace, I think she's got a little bit of a chance. Uh, maybe take advantage of a speed duel in front of her. I, I will say, though, I, I don't know about the six furlongs, and I, I just don't know if she's got that sort of killer instinct to get the job done for all the marbles. That's why I chose to go against. Number three in here, get Mother of Rose for Tom Bush. Another little number here for you past three years. Turf sprint, second after a 45 to 180 day layoff, three for 13, 276 ROI. I get it. You can twist numbers and statistics to fit whatever narrative you want. If you don't agree with it, throw it out. I don't care what you do with it. If you find your own numbers, that's fine, too. Get Mother of Rose to me. The big piece here is she didn't pick her feet up in the Intercontinental. I actually liked her that day. Uh, I'm not going to hold it against her because she ran against Newspaper of Record, who we saw come back and win the grade one just a game. Talk about her later on in the pod. But also, she has this little bit of a pattern here where her second start off of layoffs, uh, recently anyway, they've resulted in nice efforts. Uh, you go back to the beginning uh, or the middle of May 2019 coming off of a layoff she runs well close to the pace second start back she comes gets the job done take a look at this little layoff here she comes back at the end of January down at Gulfstream in the South Beach she makes a bit of a move into a slower pace flattens out second start back she wins the Honey Fox rather impressively a little bit of a layoff comes back over yielding turf in the Intercontinental second start off the layoff we'll see what we get I do like get Mother of Rose she's proven at the distance she was one that I considered quite a bit there's a part of me that wonders if she takes some money in here um, and if that's the case, maybe I'm not quite as interested, but uh, she would probably be my second choice in this spot. I think she is very interesting. I think she has some ability. The number four horse is I'll handle the cash. Goes out for Ray Handel. Jose Ortiz has the mount. I think this short comment here is uh, a rather unkind. Typically, I don't agree with some of these short comments. Uh, Steady taken up at the eighth pole. She was sawed off bad between horses. Uh, the fact that she didn't, it looked like she was going to clip heels and go down. The fact that she didn't, I think it was positive. And the fact that she stayed on and, and battled as gamely as she did uh, is a feather in her cap. Take a look at some of the other horses that ran in that race. 79, 73 buyers. The sixth and seventh place finishers are both next out winners with buyers of 85 and 79. Maybe you get a second, uh, a move forward, second start off the bench even if she just replicates that effort because it does look like she or did anyway look like she was going to fire 
she's interesting. The fact that Jose takes them out, I think, is a positive for you. Uh, let the price be your guide here. I think there is a little bit of ability in a spot like this, and I like that she's not the kind of horse that's going to get cooked in the duel, but she's also not going to come from 100 out of it. I could see her sitting two or three off of it. I'll handle the cash. Wouldn't surprise at all if she ran quite well. Uh, the five super escape, I just have no idea about the distance here for her. I think she's talented. She's done some good things on the racetrack. I also don't know if turf is actually what her favorite surface is. Uh, she's two for four on a fast dirt track. She's one for one on synth. She's one for eight on grass. This turn back in distance, we'll see if it works to her advantage. I think the fact that she's been forward in some of the longer races makes me think she's probably going to actually be a little bit farther off of it going shorter distances. And as far as the, the most recent start off the layoff is concerned, it was good when you think that we hadn't seen her since the end of December last year. And it's also interesting that the race from a number standpoint that she's exiting has come back solid. The winner came back and earned an 87 buyer. The third place finisher an 85th and 6th, 87, 84. So, you know, I, I think both Trombetta horses are interesting. I think there are questions for each of them. Again, I would kind of let price be your guide. If you if you think you can get Super Escape home at a middling to sort of double digit kind of number, she's definitely intriguing. But I just I just don't know about the distance, and I don't know where she's going to be positioned. How much ground is she going to have to make up when the real running begins? Uh, the six Escapade. Escapade's a likely winner, I believe. I just there were a couple things that turned me off. Another number, if you're interested, past five years, 60 to 180 day layoff, turf sprint for Jonathan Thomas. 7 for 21, 15 in the money with a 170 ROI. The Lightning City Stakes race that she exits from Tampa back in the middle of February. Very, very live. Jean Elizabeth comes back, wins with a 90 on synth. Our Happy Ending comes back, wins next out with an 89. Fourth place finisher, next out winner, 83. So clearly coming out of a super strong race. Escapade has some gaps in the workout tab. And some of you, I'm sure, won't care about it. And that's your prerogative. It was enough to turn me off at what I think is going to be a little bit of a shorter price. That if she was just working steadily along, I probably would have been more inclined. But with these little gaps, I'm just not totally convinced, uh, especially given the amount of money she's likely to take. The other thing I'll throw out there, I think she's going to be involved in the pace. But I can make the argument that she's better coming from slightly off of it. Not that she's incapable of running well when she's up there pushing the pace. But I think she's actually better when she can sit and stalk a little bit, uh, as evidenced by this race that's off the turf, I understand. But she sat two or three lengths off of it, came with her run. Go back to this race here off the layoff at Laurel, the N3X, two, two and a half lengths off of it, comes with a run. Uh, this run at Tampa, or excuse me, at uh, Gulfstream, sits off of it a length, comes with a run. And she had, again, she's shown that she can run well forward in the run, but I like her sitting off of the pace a little bit and making that little bit of a bid as they turn for home. Uh, the seven, Miss Auramet, you know, she's been a different animal since they put blinkers on her. And I think this is something you always want to keep in mind. Don't overlook the little things that can change with horses, little equipment change. You know, she clearly took her game to another level once the, the shades went on. But also look for things like front wraps. That's going to be the little F designation anywhere over here. Sometimes you can see a horse start going off form when front wraps have gone on. And I think it's you, you just need to factor it all into your handicapping puzzle. Uh, my knock with Miss Aramet is the pace situation. She's going to be forwardly placed. I think she has one way to go. I don't see her sitting from here. I think Luis Saez, who's a good gate rider, I think you just step on the gas from the minute the gate's open and you try to wire this field. Between her and the one down on the inside possibly hooking up, maybe even the six escapades involved in this thing, I think there's going to be enough speed for a horse that can sit two, three, four lengths off of it to try to come with their bid. And that's why I landed on the eight Dalika, Dalika, however you want to pronounce it. I believe uh, Travis Stone pronounced it Dalika. 
in the run on May 21st down at Churchill, the N2X. She came from well off of it, and she won like a good thing. She just galloped out there. I love that when Rosario got into her, not only did she level off and move really, really well, but she effectively, when he, he eased up on her for the final 100 yards, she popped to her left lead at the wire. I don't really care about that because the race was well in hand. For her to win as comfortably as she did, I think she's going to get a fair pace to run at in a spot like this. I don't think she has to come from as far back as she did in this run at Churchill. And then you couple it with the idea that mentality came back at Belmont on Friday afternoon in Hessenite and won a stakes race. I know it was for New York Breds, but got the job done with an 88 buyer. I think Dalek is going to run at least as well as she did in the Churchill race, if not take a step forward, second off the bench. There's a little number if you want to try to knock a horse like Dalek a past five years for Alstall Jr., winner last out, second after 45 to 180 day layoff, six for 42, 20 in the money with a 54 cent ROI. And this is the most important piece to me. All six of the winners were even money or less. So do with that what you will. I was taken enough by what I saw and the form anyway that the race is holding. She's going to be a short price. Uh, I don't know that she's necessarily going to be worth gambling on, but from this sort of, let's call it contest standpoint, Dalica would be my pick in here. Um, if it were a race where I needed to consider prices, you know, maybe I'd be looking more to Super Escape or something along those lines. But if I'm just trying to pick who I think is going to win the race, I'm going to go with the eight Dalica in here for Alstall Jr. and Joel Rosario coming from slightly off of it. Again, all you need to do, this is going to be Friday's feature at Belmont Park, race number nine. If you're trying to get involved in this little segment that hopefully is going to be something that we do going forward, all you need to do beneath the video player on YouTube, just pick who you think is going to win the race. I'm not even asking you to do a write-up, but if you're curious, if you want to throw out reasoning, please, the more the merrier, the more we can all help each other, the better. You pick the winner, I'll contact you. Let's get into Q&A. We're going to take a look at some of the other comments from last week's show beneath the video player on YouTube. This is where you want to leave those if you're going to try to get involved or you want to have anything thrown out there. Um, let's start with, I think it's, it's actually kind of a twofold question. Some folks, it's not even a question. Some folks were commenting on handicapping as far as contests are concerned. And then this piece from Bruce Meyer was brought up from last Friday's Horse Players Happy Hour, which you can find it's uploaded over on the In The Money Media page on YouTube. Uh, Bruce's comment, we were talking about public handicappers and what is the role of a public handicapper? Uh, Bruce's comment, regarding the discussion on the happy hour show regarding the role of the public handicapper, I will add my thoughts. It really depends on the format. If the public handicapper is required to submit all selections in advance, for example, in a publication such as DRF, I believe the goal in that scenario is to pick as many winners as possible, regardless of price. The tote board is not available, so no way to put value into the equation. On the other hand, if a public handicapper is analyzing race by race on television, for example, then value should be taken into consideration as the tote board is part of the current package of information from which to draw conclusions. That scenario can be much more complex. For example, horses can be analyzed as most likely winner, best overlay, legitimate or vulnerable favorite, etc., Scotty McMichael responds, uh, they have a minuscule amount of time to analyze, make selections on uh, on the race on TV, 15, maybe 30 seconds tops. I agree with all the scenarios you laid out, but on, on TV, your hands forced into just making a selection without being able to tell the audience why. I'm going to piggyback this into another piece here from one of the other comments that uh, Jeff Snell threw out here. 
uh, his comment, and then Scotty McMichael happened to also comment on it. Uh, handicappers playing very well all day in these tourneys, and another handicapper who was having a horrible day picks one desperate long shot and shoots up the leaderboard ahead of handicappers who played good all day. This is not fair. What is worse is the handicapper who played bingo and got lucky with a desperate long shot is considered a good handicapper, air quotes good, because of what place he is in after the long shot won. Has to be a way to eliminate this sort of desperation in tourneys and reward the better handicappers. Caps better. How about tourneys that odds are irrelevant and just the total of winners, air quotes, but I mean, I think it have to be winners, uh, during the day over multiple tracks wins the tourney. That would be much more fair. Scotty's rebuttal is a good, air quotes, good handicapper is also lucky. So you should get your head around that idea. You have the same chance to succeed in this game picking random numbers as you do being a good handicapper. The VIG is the great equalizer, making it a long-term losing game. Prove it to me if you think otherwise. There's a reason that people haven't won the NHC twice. It's a game of luck, not skill. I prefer cash tournaments because you add the money management element, which is why you see similar names at the top of the leaderboards, uh, i.e. Helmers, meaning Christian Helmers, and the guy that beat him twice. All right, there's a lot to unpack here because they're, they're two different pieces, but I think they're related. So let's start off with the public handicapper piece. I, PT, PTF and I went back and forth. I believe, to me, anybody can pick a favorite. It's not rocket science, and your strike rate statistically is going to be about 35%. So you can look like a brilliant public handicapper just picking chalk in every race. That's an, I don't think there's any inherent value there. I would say that to anyone. If you want to pick winners... Pick the favorite in every race because statistically you're going to win at least a third of the time. That's plain and simple. So I don't disagree with Bruce's statement that if you don't have other information available to you, you don't know what the odds are going to be, you don't know what the track conditions are going to be, those sort of things. I don't, I don't disagree with that at all. My only stance on the whole piece is what value am I giving to you by saying the three to five shot is going to win or even the two to one shot is going to win? is maybe it's just strictly an ego thing. I don't care that much about picking a winner. I'm more interested in trying to find a winner, perhaps at a much larger price, because those are the ones that are going to end up tying you over much longer. If you're someone that just goes to the track and you just want to pick some winners and cash some tickets, I'm, I'm not kidding. Just bet the favorite in every race. Because chances are you're going to cash, uh, if you're going to, through 10 races, you're probably going to cash at least three. Maybe four. If you're someone that's trying to make money, to me, that is not a successful way or a recipe for success, I should say. You need to factor in other pieces as far as odds are concerned, as far as race shape and things like that go. If it's just simply about picking winners, just pick the favorite in every race and you're going to pick winners. And if that's the barometer for being a good handicapper or even just, a, again, I got to separate the two. The difference between being a good handicapper and a public handicapper I, I just I can't bring myself to sit here and just say the chalk 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 that to me just I don't it doesn't jive with me I would rather have my percentage be lower but the ROI potentially higher because I think frankly that's the only way that you're going to get ahead if you're not getting some kind of a big rebate or whatever it may be long term picking chalk after chalk after chalk is just not going to work your strike rate might be great your ROI is going to suck plain and simple. I mean, there's just, there's no, there's no two ways around that. Now, as far as Scotty's comment for the first piece with Bruce, the TV piece makes it really, really freaking difficult. 
and you hope that you have a medium, whether it's a podcast or a write-up or something else, to really explain your rationale, your reasoning for liking a certain horse or not. It, 15, 30 seconds, yeah, I mean, if, especially if there's two of us, it's, you know, maybe we'll get two minutes. But it, the point is, you got to have this thing cranked up, ready to go, and know that you've got maybe two points that you can really touch on and why. Again, I, I'm, it doesn't bother me to pick losers. I want to pick horses that A, I want to bet on, and B, that I think are overlays as far as value is concerned. And I'm also saying that if there's a two-to-one shot that I think should be even money, send it in. Back up the Brinks truck because statistically the two-to-one shot is going to win a hell of a lot more than an eight or nine-to-one shot is going to. But I think they have a 50% chance of winning the race. You're giving me 50% on top of it at two-to-one. That to me, that might be as good a betting proposition as there is. As opposed to saying I think the horse should be four-to-one but they're going off at ten. Well, still, even if I think they should be four to one, they're only going to win one out of five. If I think this horse should be even money, they're going to win every other race, and you're giving me effectively the odds that they're going to win once every three times. You follow me? That's, and I know some people, especially someone like Bruce, and I'm sure many of you, uh, many of the other folks that are involved here that have played for a while or know, it can understand my point. It may sound silly, like, well, why would you just completely punt on, on winners? Because long term, they're going, horses lose. It happens. So forgive me if I'm not willing to just sit here and say the three to five shot, oh yeah, let's do it. Unless, unless I think the horse genuinely needs to like fall down to not win the race. I'm not going to do it. So that's the, the reasoning that I go as far as the, the sort of, I, I, I really don't try to differentiate if I was doing this just on my own or in this public medium. I want to throw out horses that at the very least I think can hit the board at a big price, but realistically that I think can win at a decent number. Because long term, I think that's how you end up beating it if you are going to try to beat it just on the screws, on the square, and not getting any kind of a kickback here or there or whatever it may be. Now, let's pivot into the whole other discussion. Jeff Snell. Uh, the idea sounds good. If you believe being a, if you believe the barometer for being a, a good handicapper is picking winners, then as I said, just pick favorites all day. That to me is not a good handicapper. That to me is Captain Obvious. Anybody can do that. And your strike rate, you will probably, you might even border on doubling up my rate of winning, but my ROI is going to be a hell of a lot better. I, I would, I'll go to the grave believing that. It's if you are interested in cashing tickets, I say go right ahead, bet on all the favorites. But long term, that ain't gonna work. It's not. It's just not a recipe for success. Now, when you bring up the idea of a tournament of just picking winners, that to me inherently is not actually an indication of who's the best handicapper. You have to value has to come into it. I agree with the stabbing piece. That's a that uh, honestly that's one of the biggest issues with with contests and tournaments right now is if you're in a position like that because you're right the way that you laid it out you can have someone who's all over it all day who's picked six winners is up to I'm making it up 135 140 dollars and then all of a sudden there's one horse that is a capper and the people that had you know I'm making it up 70 dollars end up just kind of nipping you by a few bucks. 
simply because mathematically that was the only horse that was going to get them by you. On paper, it's very difficult to make a case for that. I'm not disputing that. That's something that needs to be addressed. We need to figure out a way, and that's why even in these horse player happy hours, I brought up the idea of, you know, I think maybe there should just be cuts where if you're not in the top X percent after a certain point or after these different checkpoints throughout the contest, you're done. You're out. We're, so effectively, it eliminates the, the, absolute, the absolute necessary stab if you're going to try to win. Where So if we have, let's say it's a 10-race contest, at the, at the 50% mark, halfway through, through five races, if you're not in the top half, you're out. Cut you. Done. After the next race, let's say, let's say we chop 10% at a time. So let's say there's 100 people that started this thing. After five races, we cut it down to 50. After four, there's four races now. Now we're down to 40, 30, 20. Maybe that's not even aggressive enough. Maybe we need to get it so that going into the final race, there's only a handful of people that are left. So you, now, but even having said that, there's a real scenario where based on game theory and things of that nature, you're going to get the people toward the bottom that, yes, I can pick this 12 to one shot who I actually like and I think can win the race, but in all likelihood, the people ahead of me are going to also have that horse so by default, do I just end up going to the to the capper or the the we call them an over capper, a horse that goes off at thirty five to one, where you know just strictly from a cap standpoint, if you're looking at you know uh, horse players or horse tourneys or, or any of these sort of two dollar win place contests, you're not getting any added value as far as over the sixty four dollar cap, but you're getting the value in that fewer people are probably going to go that direction, knowing that you don't get anything out of it. So inherently that narrows how many people are playing it and you get in inflated value because of that. So, you know, look, it's a difficult proposition, a difficult situation to address because I can understand the idea that people are fed up with all of a sudden Joe Blow from the back of the pack just has, you know, picks one horse who on paper is borderline impossible and ends up winning the whole thing. At the same time, a contest of just picking winners that doesn't do anything for anyone. That's just so just as a tally mark throughout that I you're not proving to me that you're any better than anybody else. That's just a pick all favorites. There's no I don't see any value in that. I think you need to include value. Now this goes to Scotty McMichael's piece and then we will turn the page into a little bit more of handicapping pieces. Um, Scotty's point about the VIG being the great equalizer is 100% simply because this, the juice in this game is massive, especially just in, in general. This, this is a really, really difficult game given how much you already are going to be taking a haircut on to start off with. Uh, but you almost contradict yourself at the end here. Uh, there's a reason that people haven't won the NHC twice. Uh, it's a game of luck, not skill. I prefer cash tournaments because you add the money management element. The money management element is a skill. That's that's a skill to have. So you you contradict yourself there, and you're right. You see someone like Christian Helmers, who I've said it time and time again. He was with me on the Horse Players Show. He was the first one to really hammer the idea of value into my head, and he has made it clear. I, we we we'd had conversations in the past that you need to be able to look at things, especially in the NHC, the likelihood of picking out of I, I what is it, whatever it is, twenty four races. I'm making it up for two days. The likelihood of picking the favorite in every one of those races and having the favorite win, very, very slim. 
but you're going to probably pick a lot of winners. The problem is your mutual return is going to be so small that you have no chance of actually competing to win. That's why I've always joked that if you're middle of the pack for some of these contests, you actually never had a chance. That's why a lot of the folks that end up zeroing out or winning it all, like that, that to me, though, you're actually more likely to go zero but have a better chance to win than the person that ends up with $24. That's just because in all likelihood, that person that's in that $24 range, I mean, look, they could very easily just be getting unlucky that day, but you're probably picking horses that, you know, realistically not going to be enough to get you to the top. Um, but back to this piece here, the, the money management piece is a skill. You, there's luck involved in all of this. You're going to have good days. You're going to have bad days. No, no two ways around it. But money management is inherently a skill. So I, while I agree with some of what you're saying, I disagree with the idea that you got to be lucky. Well, you have to have good money management in the live money events in order to be in that position. Is, is good money management luck? No. Good money management is laying out things accordingly and saying, you know, this is what the game plan is. And let's, if we need to make little tweaks here and there, so be it. But that's, that's a skill. That is not luck. I, th I think, and based on your comments, I think you probably understand that. Maybe it was just poor choice of words. But um, yeah, I, I think that there's there's a lot to unpack there. But to my philosophy, and that's why some people, you know, if, I'm not going to go into some details, but the idea of, you know, not a great handicap or whatever, I, I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel here as far as, you know, what the role is. All I'm saying is I'm probably going to pick a smaller number percentage-wise of winners, but the ones that do connect, the, the, the ethos, pick winners that are going to make up for your losses. If I have a string of, if I pick 10 horses in a row that are two to one, and let's say three of them win, okay? So if I get six bucks each for each one of those, six, 12, 18. But I've bet $2 on 10 races to win. Where am I? I'm down $2, which is not a terrible number, but you're still down. Now, out of those 10 races, if I pick horses that are, let's say, 8 to 1 in each one of them, and I hit 1, maybe 2. Let's just go with 1, though. If I hit 1, 8 to 1 out of that 10-race span... What's it going to come back? I mean, at 18 bucks. It's the exact same thing that you did, but I only had one. You needed to hit three. And that's also saying if I'm only picking eight to one shots, what if I pick an eight to one, a 10 to one, I sprinkle in a two to one or a three to one? Maybe you connect with one of those and you grab a price. That's why the idea of just picking favorites in the long term, it ain't going to work. If I pick that 8-1 to one or I pick a, a 10-1 to one that gets me back to even as far as those 10 races are concerned, but I can pick up a 4-1 to one and a 2-1, to one, all of a sudden we're ahead. So that's the way that my mind goes as far as this whole thing is, the, whether it's public handicapping, whether it's contest play, all that sort of jazz. Now, let's take a look at a couple other real quick pieces, then we'll dive into some other little housekeeping. Um, comments, uh, Tommy Seafeld, this was an interesting one to me. Would it be premature to toss digital age in the off-the-board category? I'm going to get to that in a little bit. Uh, seems like he just hasn't had the same kick since the win on Derby Day last year, or maybe he wants shorter, similar to how Raging Bull has hit his stride going a little shorter. That, to me, the second piece right there, I think you hit the nail on the head. I went through and looked at his PPs. 
you know, his return to the races uh, last week really wasn't bad. He only was beaten by a half length, and I thought he got the shuffle on the far turn. He ended up following the horse and ultimately won, breaking the rules. But he only lost by a half length. From a number standpoint, he hasn't gotten markedly faster yet, but that was his first start since November last year as a three-year-old. But he finished his final eighth and 11 seconds flat, and there wasn't a ton of speed signed on. There's a part of me that wonders if he's a horse that would be would appreciate a turn to a mile. The problem then becomes, is he good enough to really compete with the best of the best at a mile? Um, I wonder if he's just kind of in that weird mm, tweener, you know, he's probably best going shorter, but is his best going shorter good enough to run with the best? If that makes sense, you follow me? Um, the mile and an eighth, I don't think is a problem for him, but again, I don't know that necessarily his best at a mile and an eighth is as good as some of the other boys and girls that are at that mile and an eighth too. So I'm not gonna, I wouldn't give him up. I wouldn't throw him in the off the board category just yet because A, it's Chad Brown. And if, you know, <laughs> throw anything from Chad away at your own risk. Um, and also I just, I, I wouldn't give up on him just yet. I, I, I think maybe a little bit of a change here or there. Um, I would appreciate it a little bit more if, if he was, into the run a little bit, knowing that he still has a nice kick at the end. If you could get him into the race a little earlier, as opposed to trying to rally from four, five, six, seven out of it, um, maybe that would help his cause as well. And the last piece we'll touch on here, uh, Alex Kibrick, I'm going to read your comments, but then I will offer mine at the very end when I talk about those couple races. Um, Alex's thoughts, a couple other thoughts from this weekend. Speculation that Midnight Bisu could be competitive in the BCC, meaning the Classic, uh, is ridiculous. She won't be better at 10 furlongs. Her best is clearly at a mile and 16th, and she still hasn't won the distaff yet, albeit this might be the toughest field she'll face with the likes of Monomoy Girl, Monomoy Girl Guarana, uh, Swiss Skydiver, Gamin, and Contention. I maintain the same opinion about Mean Mary that I had in my episode 8 comment. Newspaper of record finally relaxed. Good to see. Only had no pace to close into, but that'll change in a race like the BC Mile when everyone knows, uh, when everyone is sending and the pace will be high. The other piece that he brought up, I'm still not convinced about Tom's Data, who was the winner of the Stephen Foster. Uh, you look at his form, and he has clearly been exposed while contesting, uh, excuse me, when contesting true grade one quality horses, McKinsey and the Ali Sheba in 2019, City of Light in the 2019 Pegasus. I want him to prove that he's grade one caliber by taking on the likes of Code of Honor and McKinsey in the Whitney and beating them. The Connections bypassed last year's Breeders' Cup to get his grade one win over a soft Clark Field. Hopefully, they put him in the toughest spots possible going forward so we can really gauge how good he is. I like the comments all around. Brilliant comments, Alex. Um, I may not agree with all of them, but I like the way that you've laid them out. You've given reasoning for them, and I will give my opinions on some of those, almost all of those horses here in a little bit. For right now, though, let's transition into pick history. We'll dive into in the money off the board, and then I will dive into those races that we spoke about. Updated pick history in the money, off the board, and some thoughts on those stakes races. Pick history, pretty straightforward. Sample size, 219. Uh, the win percentage is 18% with a 186 ROI. The win place show percentage is 49%. The ROI is 182. The numbers, obviously, from that little bit of a slide there, uh, they've taken a hit. Hopefully trending back the right direction. Uh, Mo of the West last week at 9-1 to helped things. If you're curious about all of the plays that are involved, for this piece, the pick history, they're available over on racingpicks.com. It's free. All you need to do, put in your email address. You're good to go. Locked in there. Myself, Andrew Champagne is over there as well. It's all free. Racingpicks.com. Uh, in the money, off the board. And I'm going to, these, these two are going to kind of meld together, turn into one. 
this segment along with just talking on the four races that I'm going to quickly just breeze through. Um, in the money is Chad Brown. There's no, I don't know how, not just because of what he did with newspaper of record and how she's back, seemingly. How, when was the last time you saw a trainer in one race have two even money shots and not just in any race, but a grade one? I, I don't know that I've ever seen that before. Um, and think of all the trainers over the past, and I'll only go 10 years, but I'm sure you could go even deeper than that. Can you think, and if you ha- if you can, let me know, either beneath the video player on YouTube or on Twitter, at Bernie or underscore Matt. When was the last time you saw one trainer in one race with six horses minimum that had two even money shots, and not only was this just, it wasn't just any old race, it was a grade one at Belmont. Bananas to me. Um, newspaper of record was really good. She, it, I think the biggest thing that she proved here was that she put away that whole notion, and I was one of the people bringing it up, that to date she'd only won on yielding turf. Um, it was listed as firm on Saturday, and she still won for fun. I would have, I wished valedictorian would have pushed her harder. And I, I recognize that, you know, maybe they thought they could just hang around and get a piece. But Valedictorian's already a graded stakes winner. I don't know that a grade one placing really would have made a tremendous difference as far as her broodmare value is concerned. I wish that she had just really pushed hard. Because I think, I'm, I could be wrong, but I think newspaper, it was like a half and 48, something along those lines. For a horse that brilliant, that kind of seems like a walk in the park. Um, but all in all, uh, you know, good for her. She's back. Oh, look at that. It's on the wrong wrong side. Let's do this. Let's do this. And we're back. Just a little. Now we're back. Anyway. Uh, newspaper record's good. There's, uh, you know, again, not really breaking any news there. Um, the, the thing that I'm going to be most interested in seeing going forward is what happens if other speed is thrown her way? What happens if there are, kind of to Alex Kibrick's point, what happens when you get some burners in that, Breeders' Cup mile, because let's assume it's, you know, that that's really what we're going to be looking at here at this point. What happens when there's some other burners in there and she can't go out there and go 48 to the half? What if she has to go 46? What if she's got to go 46, put away some speeds, and then deal with world-class closers? That's more interesting to me to find out what the hell's going to happen there. Also something to keep in mind for all of these races as we lead toward the Breeders' Cup, which is at Keeneland. Keeneland is a very funny track. Keeneland is, is uh, Keeneland, dare I say, is quirky. The turf, some horses can get over it and some can't pick their feet up for whatever reason. And I don't know that there's really any rhyme or reason to who does and who doesn't. Some horses really can run there and some can't. And I can say the same about the dirt track. Just some, some odd results can, can happen, can play out down at Keeneland. Something to keep in mind. And I'm not saying that newspaper of record is going to fall into that category. But it's nice to see horses that have been proven at that track in the past. Where you don't have to worry about that sort of thing going into it. Especially at a short price. And you know, if she, let's just assume it's the Breeders' Cup mile that she shows up in. You know, she's going to be a short price, presumably, if she carries on with this sort of form. Giant race from her. I believe a 105 buyer. Um, as far as Uni is concerned in that race in the Just a Game, maybe she was a little bit flat. The pace wasn't ballistic. Um, 
I thought she probably should outfinish Bo Recall, who I actually, I loved Bo, Bo Recall in that race. And I thought she ran just fine um, to finish second at 10 to 1. But, you know, Uni, she's going to move forward. I mean, this this was not the end-all be-all. I'd imagine a, a repeat effort in the Breeders' Cup is what uh, the connections all have their eyes on for her. Now, as far as the, well, let me talk about the other race in New York first before I go into my off-the-board segment. Um, the other race in New York, the New York Stakes. I said, and I don't remember which episode it was, but Alex Kibrick's making note of, of episode eight, so maybe it is episode eight. I th- I tweeted before the race that I believe Mean Mary is a, is a could be a Breeders' Cup filly and mare type, and I said maybe I'll look stupid after this. And she went out there, and I get it. She walked on the on the lead, easy as can be, but boy, she kicked. She kicks. She looks like a proper horse that can carry that speed at longer distances, which is, to me, the hallmark of if, 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 if you want to upend the Europeans, if you want to upend Chad Brown, you need to have a horse that can stay the distance and can do it out there on the front end. And that's what this filly can do for Grand Motion. I think she's very, very talented. I love the way that she moves. She, she does everything great. Now, the knocks would be she's going to have to do it against much better company. If we're thinking Breeders' Cup, fine. That's where I'm thinking. I'm, I am thinking much bigger. If she's going to run in the Breeders' Cup, she's going to need to do it against much better horses. And then Nick Tamaro brought up something interesting. Um, he shot me a, a. We went back and forth on Twitter there for a minute. Keeneland, Philly and Turf, I believe, is a mile and three sixteenths. And to me, Mean Mary feels that much more dangerous as the distance gets longer. I don't know that she would be incapable at a mile and three sixteenths, but it opens up the possibility for a number of other horses to be involved early on, as opposed to the mile and a half types, the mile and three eighths types that we've seen from the Philly and Turf from the past. So that could be a little bit of a, a, a difference maker. Uh, but having said that, I, I just love me, Mary. I think the world of her, I think she's incredibly talented. And I, I said it before the race. I said it in that pod, must have been episode eight weeks ago. I think she could be a Philly and Mare Philly and Mare turf type, and uh, I believe that now more than ever. I think she's very, very talented. Now, let's go to the off-the-board piece. The off-the-board piece for me, who's off the board this week? It's it's those people, and maybe, they're, it's, maybe it's some of you. Uh, it's been out there on Twitter before. The people that are, are pissing and moaning about speed figures, about the buyers between Midnight Bisou and the Florida Lee and Tom's Day Ta and the Stephen Foster. This is a very straightforward case. I mean, it, it could not be more crystal clear. And again, I'm not going to get into all the details. If you need to uh, learn a little bit more about uh, figure making and things like that, I can only recommend the the literature that I have in the past. And also follow along someone like Craig Milkowski on Twitter at Timeform US Figs because he's as good as they get. When you go through and look at the charts for the runs at Churchill Downs, yes, Midnight Bisou looked amazing. She never took a deep breath. She won. I mean, it, it was hands and heels. It was a thing of beauty. The, I'm not even going to say the problem. The reality of the situation is she stopped the clock in 148.99, a shade under 149 for a mile and an eighth, which, uh, let's be honest, pedestrian. Now, she never got out of a gallop. So, the, the folks that are saying that the number is too low because of the way that she did it, that, that's not what a figure is. A figure is telling you how fast they ran based on the clock. And based on the clock and, and with the buyers, uh, she ran a 93. Could she have run faster? 
I know some people don't believe that. I know some people do. I think of a horse like, um, go back a number of years, Verrazano. To me, Verrazano had one way. It didn't matter if he was being pushed on or it was. It looked as though it was a, a workout in the morning. The horse was going to give you what he had, for better or for worse. Then there are going to be other horses that can just kind of lope along out there. And if you give them a little bit of a reminder, there's a little bit more in the tank. Now, is there enough to make up the, the time difference between what we saw from the girls and the boys? I would say under no circumstances could I sit here and realistically say that Midnight Bisu could have run eight to nine lengths faster than she did. And I get it. The pace situations were, were complete 180s from one another, where in the girls' race, there was, I'm not even going to say an honest pace, it was a wicked pace, which I know some people were critical. I, I thought it was, that, that's what I wanted to see from Joe Talent. Go, open up, and just try to run them off their feet. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But trying to get too cute with it, and I, I just go. I thought it was a poor effort from Serengeti Empress, just as a whole. But I have no issues with the tactics. And I chose her. I, I said this is going to be, this could potentially be the position where, you know, long term was Bisu thinking, they got bigger things to worry about, da 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 but when you just look at the, the final times with the numbers, 148.99 versus 147.3 for Tom's Day Tot, it's not close. I mean, we're, we're legitimately talking eight to nine lengths. So I, I don't think anybody complaining about figures has any real basis because I, to me, that clearly shows that you don't know what goes into making a speed figure or what a speed figure actually is. Speed figure has nothing to do with what the horse looks like out on the track. Has everything to do with what the what the clock says, and the clock says that Tom Zetar ran a hole in the wind. Uh, I I even made mention of it after the race when I saw the chart for the first time. You got a final eighth of a mile and twelve flat. That's bananas on dirt. I mean, this was a, uh, this was. I would say this is probably the best performance of the year so far on dirt. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to think offhand if there was if there's something else that's even remotely comparable. Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, I, he, he, he was in a good position. He was very sharp. He was very close to the pace throughout. Um, I, like I love by my standards going into it. I love by my standards coming out of it. Uh, he just got beat by a better horse in the spot. Maybe if the dynamics play out a little bit differently, uh, you know, down the road, things can be different, but there's no two ways around it. He was just beat on the square by a horse who was drawing away down the lane. Um, this was a, a big league effort, but to complain about the fact that Bisu's number was only a 93 buyer and Tom's was a 109 for good reason. I mean, like he ran dramatically faster. Like that's not close. Dramatically faster. That doesn't make sense. You get what I'm saying? Much, much faster than Bisu did. Now, if you want to say that you think Bisu can end up doing X, Y, and Z, she could run faster, uh, she just, you know, it was a workout, whatever, that's your prerogative. I'm just telling you, if you're complaining about the figures, you don't know what goes into them. I thought Bisu was awesome. Um, you know, some people are, have already brought up the idea of running in the Breeders' Cup Classic. I believe I saw that Jeff Bloom said that that's not out of the realm of possibility. Um, I'm not going to, if that's what they want to do, that's what they want to do. I'm not somebody also... I can go either way with it. If she runs against the boys, great. If she runs against the girls, where I think right now she probably should, just because she's never won a Breeders' Cup race before, to Alex's point. Um, and I know it's it could potentially be a salty race, but 
How about you worry about that as opposed to going out to 10 against a horse? Like compared to Tom's Day Tie, it's not even close right now. Now, going back to Alex's point though, Tom's Day Tie, if you don't believe a horse like By My Standards is a true grade one type, his point's not wrong. And that's always been the thing that's lingering in the back of my mind with Tom's Day Tie is what, you know, you've, you've been beat by a number of these horses before. What all of a sudden has changed? I think it could just simply be that the horse is fully matured and now he's actually fully sound. I mean, this is a horse that has had a number of stops, starts and stops throughout his career. And for Alstall to finally get him as sound as he is and keep him as good as he is as a seven-year-old, by the way, he's a full horse. He's not cut. I, I was, uh, for some reason, I was going back and looking through and I was I was dumbfounded when I saw that he was a horse. I figured he had been cut by now. Um, he's, he's as good as he's ever been. And if he's going to be doing this sort of thing, He's going to be really, really freaking hard to beat. He's proven at Keeneland already. You don't have to worry about that. You know, a mile and a quarter, I I initially didn't know I was... Put it this way. I was going to say something before the race in that, is there a possibility that we're going to see two Breeders' Cup winners coming out of the Stephen Foster minimum? And I was going to say, by my standards in the Classic and Tom Zaytan, the Dirt Mile. And after watching this, I don't think either of them should go to the Dirt Mile, but I, I clearly was... I don't want to say wrong. I still believe him by my standards. But the point is, I, I just he was spectacular in here. And I don't think you can I don't think there's really anything to knock about the performance unless you don't think a horse like by my standards is actually proper grade one quality to Alex's point that he's no McKinsey, he's no uh you know, any of these other big boys out there, a code of honor, uh any of these types. Or any of these three-year-olds, it is the law if he continues on this sort of track. So um, that's my off-the-board piece, and those are my thoughts on these races. You have thoughts on any other races or these races that I just chatted about beneath the video player on YouTube or on Twitter, at Bernier underscore Matt. That's going to wrap up episode 21 of the Matt Bernier Show. For the In The Money Media Network, you can head on over to InTheMoneyPodcast.com. You can listen to this and download it on Apple Podcasts. You can download it on your Android device, or you can listen on YouTube. Type in Matt Bernier Show in that search bar. Make sure you subscribe. Make sure the bell icon is lit up so you get a notification anytime anything new is uploaded to the In The Money Media page. Um, Please, thumbs up, thumbs down, whatever it may be, and keep coming with the comments. For better or for worse, I'd rather hear what you want to hear or what your honest thoughts are than just keep going and talking into an echo chamber. It doesn't do anybody any good. The, the, the more the merrier. And if you're trying to get involved with this new, hopefully new segment, with the sort of handicapping piece, all you got to do, pick the winner for Friday's race this week. It's the ninth at Belmont. I'll contact you if you're right. If there are multiple people that are right, I'll do it randomly. If everybody responds and nobody picks a winner, I'll do it randomly as well. But we'll get you all set up and we'll figure it out for next Monday. We'll record and then you'll be part of the pod talking about whatever race next Friday is going to be uh, rolling out. So uh, until next Monday, best of luck however you play, whatever you play, and wherever you play. It's been episode 21 of the Matt Burning Show.